1: Hi there, and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, History Friends. My name is Zach Twomley, and you're about to listen to a very large episode. How on earth do you find the time to make these episodes so darn large and detailed, Zach? Well, I'll tell you, it's no secret. I get some pretty wonderful support from History Friends on Patreon. If you'd like to be one of those lovely History Friends, and join the now 300, that's right, 300 people supporting this show then head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, where you will receive some wonderful gifts in return for your dollars. Currently, people are plugging themselves into the Suez Crisis series, and if you'd like to know more about that, make sure to check out that teaser episode we released, which, in terms of teaser episodes, it's pretty darn long at over an hour, but that's because we look at every single episode in some kind of teaser fashion, and explain to you exactly what the story is with the Suez Crisis so far. Can't express how much your support means to me, guys. It literally powers this podcast and keeps it going. And even while you might be sick of me going on and on and on about it, at least once I talk about it here, I shut up then and just present you with the history. So, because I love you unusually this time, this is all I'm going to say. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails if you are interested. And if not, make sure you tell other people about this show, about Versailles, about what our mission is here. That mission being to basically understand exactly what the Treaty of Versailles was all about, where it came from, what it did, what was good about it, bad about it, etc, etc. It's a long journey we've been on since November, and I'm really enjoying the journey. But it takes a lot of work, and I'm able to do this work because of your support. So thanks so much. If you just tell one person about this show today, that's your good deed for the day. And don't think I don't know, because I do know. Consider me like the guardian of the podcasts, in the same way that Woodrow Wilson was the self-proclaimed guardian of things that were just and right in Paris, especially when it came to defending those principles against those unruly, unscrupulous, greedy Italians who were just so bold in wanting what they were promised in 1915. Let's delve into that story, that very, very chunky story, right now. to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 56. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to episode 56 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Last time we examined the experiences of Italy at the Paris Peace Conference, and in particular her difficult relationship with her allies. The Italians were grasping to their friends and dangerous to their enemies, but in the minds of the Italians and the statesmen that fought their case, Italy was only attending to get what was hers by right. It had been written in the 1915 Treaty of London, and whatever Woodrow Wilson might think of that treaty, the President surely could not simply repudiate it as though it was of no consequence, could he? As Italian figures negotiated and became more and more anxious in the French capital, Italians on the peninsula and across the Adriatic Sea were creating their own nationally fueled crises, whether in Fiume or in the Tyrol. Italian borders seemed endlessly contentious and problematic. As the Allies worked to find a way around these claims, or to ignore them altogether in some cases, the Italians became more obstructive and paranoid in the varied committees and in the Council of Four. Matters had reached such a fever pitch that by the third week of April 1919, it was doubtful whether Italy would fulfil its role in the peace conference at all. The subsequent exit of Italy from the Council of Four on this day 100 years ago and the shrinking of the Allied gatherings from four men to three represented a critical development in the diplomacy of the Conference and though Italy would return within the fortnight on the 7th of May, its relationship with the Allies was forever changed and its statesmen had been mostly left behind. In this episode we examine this immensely weighted moment where Vittorio Orlando and his supporters came to believe that enough was enough, and that it was time to call the Allied bluff. Without any further ado then, I'll take you now to these sequence of events which led to that Italian walkout on this day 100 years ago. Easter Sunday was a gloriously sunny day in Paris and Frances Stevenson had every reason to suspect that her lover would be bringing her out for the picnic, as he had promised, soon enough. Stevenson was able to make the most of the weather, thanks to her lodging in one of the plushest residences in the city, but sunshine was not all she could see. Across the road, Stevenson could clearly see into the neighbour's house. There seemed to be quite a scene taking place. This was an emergency meeting of the Council of Four, and as David Lloyd George's mistress Stevenson was already more informed than most as to what was taking place. The different figures could be seen through the window as the curtains were not drawn. A curious and then a stunning sight loomed into Stevenson's field of vision. The Italian premier, Vittorio Orlando, appeared to be leaning against the bar of the window, staring out of it, and he was visibly upset. Not only visibly upset, Stevenson noted, the man was actively sobbing. "'What have they been doing to the poor gentleman?' exclaimed Lloyd George's valet from behind her, evidently also taken up with the scene. I could not believe it possible, Stevenson later recalled, until I saw him take out his handkerchief and wipe his eyes and cheeks. Inside the room where the scene was taking place, there was a lot less sympathy going around. Clemenceau looked coldly upon Orlando's display of frustrated, pained emotion. The culmination of several months of first being ignored and then being treated unfairly. Orlando might not have minded delaying Italy's case until April when it could receive due attention, but the recent snubs by the Allied leaders represented several shocks to his system. He saw his political career flash before his eyes. Perhaps he even imagined that the tumult which awaited him at home would take his life. Italy had come up against a wall built first and foremost by Woodrow Wilson, After years of destructive and horrendously costly conflict, Orlando was desperate to hand Italians something which would help them feel as though the whole rotten endeavour had been worthwhile. Yet he faced Woodrow Wilson's refusal to accept the Treaty of London, the President's unwillingness to heed her demands in the Balkans, and an uneven application of the self-determination idea everywhere else. Italy had been a country divided before 1914, and its uneven production and wealth was set disproportionately to favour the North. As a Sicilian, Orlando would certainly have wanted to cushion the engendered resentment between Italy's two halves by securing some tasty morsels of Illyria or Dalmatia or even Turkey, but he had been constantly turned away. Orlando's performance at Paris was like a metaphor for Italy's national story since the 1860s. There was so much promise, and so many promises made, but the reality proved to be painfully unfulfilling. If you would like a refresher in exactly where Italy came from and how it became unified, make sure and check out the Italian Unification podcast by the Ashwell Brothers. I'll put the link for that show in the description below, just in case you enjoy your background. In any case though, Italy's economy had been amongst the slowest growing in Europe in 1914, and efforts to offset this poor growth rate the traditional way, that is by imperial distractions, had been met with disaster. In 1896, Italian arms had been utterly humiliated by the Ethiopians, to the extent that, 40 years later, Mussolini's revenge invasion tour of that kingdom, complete with poison gas and terrible atrocities, was viewed as something of a salve on the country's national honour. Italy was late to the scramble for Africa, and harboured deep resentment towards France for getting to Tunisia first. When she sought to avenge the Ethiopian humiliation 15 years later with a strike on Ottoman-controlled Libya, the result was imperial expansion but also the beginning of a new era of instability. Italy's invasion of Libya in September 1911 knocked over the first Ottoman domino which the former Ottoman subjects in the Balkans capitalised upon. Just as peace was being made between Constantinople and Rome to end the war which the Italian invasion of Libya had initiated, The Balkan states of Greece, Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria and Montenegro struck, igniting the first Balkan war and then paving the way for the second when the victors fought over the spoils. By the time the process had ended in autumn 1913, Italian leaders would have been forced to admit that the empowering of these Balkan nation-states represented a net negative for Italian expansionism in the region. This was to be confirmed in five years' time, when the collapse of Austria-Hungary enabled not the Italians, but those aforementioned Balkan states, to fill the vacuum. This transformation of the Balkan situation was especially bitter for Italians, because the defeat of the Habsburgs was meant to represent a moment of opportunity for their interests. An occupation and linkage of the major ports across the Adriatic would guarantee Italian economic prosperity and power a major post-war boom on the peninsula. With protectorates over Illyria, Albania and Dalmatia, Italians would finally realise that potential which unification had taught them to expect. There was certainly an element of expectation on the Allied side as well, but it was a different kind of expectation. It was, first and foremost, that the Italians would pay their debts. Italy owed some £700 million by 1919. It had survived the war by spending money it did not have. On the battlefield, the Italian story was as gory and horrific as that of the Western Front. Italians fought uphill in the Alps in terrible conditions, with ignorant leaders and lacklustre provisions. The morale and strategic position of the country collectively collapsed in late 1917, following the disaster at the Battle of Caporetto, and in a similar vein to the French case, it required a Herculean effort of national rallying to save the war. By the end of the conflict, over half a million men had died, and double that had been left wounded or mutilated from the war. The soldiers were not the only ones to bear these marks of mutilation. In a theme which would be harnessed by other statesmen in neighbouring countries, the notion of a mutilated victory, that the soldiers won the war and the politicians lost the peace, took root. In the face of such grim sentiments, Italy's political system did not help matters. Vittorio Orlando's political position had only been established in October 1917, in the aftermath of the Caporetto disaster, and while he had impressed those statesmen in Italy with his firm resolve to retreat to Sicily if necessary and continue the fight, by spring 1919 he was floundering and he knew it. The more he returned to Rome, the more anxious and biting the political atmosphere seemed to be. Moderates had virtually abandoned his government by late March of 1919 and opposition politicians had started to work against him, to the extent that Orlando was forced to rely increasingly on the more hardline nationalist and right-wing politicians. Their support of Orlando's government was conditional upon the weighty promises Orlando kept giving for the fulfilment of her territorial ambitions. But Orlando must have known that by the 20th of April, as he wept openly in front of the men he had for so long attempted to persuade, this task was impossible. One figure whom Orlando had come to depend upon was the man who would later take much of the blame for his failings, the dour and stubborn 72-year-old two-time Premier of Italy and current Foreign Minister Sidney Sennino. Born in Egypt to an Italian Jewish businessman and Welsh mother, Senino's background is interesting, even if the man hadn't worked since the 1870s to reach the top of Italy's greasy pole. His view of politics borrowed from Bismarck, in addition to Disraeli, for it was Bismarck that had it right in Sanino's mind when he imagined the concert of Europe as little more than a quest for a sacred egoism and the pursuit of power. His liberal tendencies were gradually overcome by a conservative nationalist streak, which, much like his crop of ghostly white hair, gave him a startling presence. Those that had served under him as premier in his 1906 and 1909 ministries afforded him a grudging respect, but in 1914... As Foreign Minister, Senino was faced with a great challenge in policy. His conservatism now more pronounced, Senino leant towards the Central Powers, but eventually changed his mind and became convinced of the utility in joining the Allies. These calculations were made without much emotion or bitterness. To Senino the issue was simply one of how much Italy could benefit from participation in the war, and the Allies seemed to present the best offer. Throughout the duration of the war, sanino stayed on as foreign minister, which granted him a unique opportunity to preside over a time of great change in Italy. When Woodrow Wilson's offers of mediation were spurned, only to be replaced by the 14 points in January 1918, Senino reacted with indignation, declaring the 14 points to be An underhanded campaign of foreign propaganda which has attempted to insinuate that Italian aspirations are inspired by conceptions of imperialism, of anti-democracy, of anti-nationalism, etc. This is all absolutely false. Italy's claims to Austria-Hungary, maintained Senino, were based solely on Italy's national security concerns and on the rights of those Italian subjects who lived in those regions. This was not an exercise in grasping, greedy imperialism, but... Wilson was evidently not convinced by this appeal. The Treaty of London had been one of the first documents he had asked to see when he arrived in Paris, and the American President hadn't liked what he had seen. In their meetings sans Orlando during the first few weeks of April, Wilson had let it be known then that he would not accept Italian ownership of Fiume, and that at best it would become a free city under League of Nations control. Wilson had been persuaded, as we will see, by American experts who reminded him of where his original position had been on such matters. The 13th of April represents a particularly important date, not just for the Italians, but also for the Paris Peace Conference as a whole, because it was here that the Allies determined the time was right to issue an invitation for the Germans to attend. To facilitate the German arrival, it was declared necessary to speed up any other business that might be in the air, such as the Italian questions. The French disagreements with Wilson, interestingly, were resolved around this same time, as Clemenceau was permitted to engage in a limited occupation of the Rhine River crossings, and the reparations matter was scheduled to be resolved within the week as well. To get to the bottom of what was to be done with Italy, first and foremost, Woodrow Wilson determined to meet face to face with Orlando on the thirteenth of April. So it was that on that date, during a particularly stormy meeting, Wilson met with Orlando and essentially cleared the air. For the first time, the President stated explicitly what Italy would and would not get from the peace conference. Writing on that day's meeting, René Albert Carre, the Turkish-born historian turned expert on all things Italy during the Great War and Paris Peace Conference, wrote in his iconic 1938 volume on the subject of Italian participation in the Paris Peace Conference, saying... On this occasion, the 13th of April, Wilson gave Orlando a memorandum summing up and restating his views on the Italian claims in the Adriatic. The burden of it was that he did not feel at liberty to use different bases for the Austrian and for the German peace. Personally, he agreed to the Pact of London line in the north, but did not feel that the same criterion could be applied in the east. He then stated the usual arguments in defence of the proposed American line. As to Fiume, it was an international, not an Italian, port. For that reason, while included in the Yugoslav customs system, it should have a very large degree of autonomy. Italy could probably have Lisa and Valona. This, with the demilitarisation of the islands and guarantees for the Italians in Yugoslavia, would give Italy complete fulfilment of her national aspirations and all the security she could reasonably expect. Wilson wished, in addition, that Orlando would make his memorandum known to the Italian Parliament. This meeting, taking place a week before Francis Stevenson was to see the Italian Premier sobbing before his peers, contains some hidden nuggets which Wilson's blithe and airy presentation might have obscured. First and foremost, Wilson was demonstrating here that he was happy to apply his self-determination principles to some regions of the map, but not in others. Wilson saw this as a form of horse trading but Orlando saw it as a cynical play to restrict Italian gains, based on some vague conception of Wilsonian justice, an idea we will come back to in future episodes. Orlando would have been especially perturbed that Wilson had requested he present this uncompromising American stance to the Italian Parliament. If Orlando did this, then Orlando would not be able to claim that Wilson would listen in the future, or that he was listening to him now. It could well cause a storm which would sweep away his ministry. This was an unfortunate development, but the subsequent days only served to illustrate how extensive the gulf was between the Italians and the Americans. Two days later, on the 15th of April, Edward House recorded in his diary the extent of the feelings of hostility between Italy and the Anglo-French. In that situation, it was apparent that Orlando was reliant on Wilson's goodwill, which was unfortunately in short supply. House wrote... I talked with Orlando and found him exceedingly bitter towards Lloyd George. He feels that both Lloyd George and Clemenceau have thrown him, not only regarding the Italian frontier, but because of their desire to make peace with Germany before settling the question between Italy and the former Austrian Empire. What he said about Lloyd George was scarcely fit to print. He spoke of him as slippery, that he did not keep his word, and that he summed it all up by saying that, unfortunately, England had a prime minister who was not a gentleman. He asked to come around this morning at 10 and he was with me for a half hour. I undertook to try to get the questions between Italy and the former Austro-Hungarian Empire settled, simultaneously with the peace treaty with Germany. I begged him not to be discouraged about the settlement of their frontier. The questions between France on the one side and the United States and England on the other were much more difficult and had seemed insoluble. However, we have been working upon them for several months with Clemenceau on the one hand and with Lloyd George on the other and now they were being settled to the satisfaction of all parties concerned. I thought the Italian questions could also be settled, provided there was a disposition to yield a little by all parties, and if there was a continuous discussion of them, which must necessarily bring out new ideas and some compromises. I called his attention to the fact that Fiume was the main difficulty. If we could get over that hurdle, the rest would be settled in a canter. House may well have been simply putting on a brave face on things here. There's no indication that this dispute was as easily fixed as had been previous disputes between the other three allies. Populations in Britain, France or the United States were at least not awaiting news of strategically contentious land being handed to them, with the exception arguably of the Rhineland. Italy's population, furthermore, had been whipped into a much more passionate frenzy by mid-April than her counterparts in Paris had been. Interestingly, just at the moment when relations with Italy were deteriorating, relations with France, according to House, had notably improved. In return for Wilson's agreement to several of Clemenceau's terms, mostly relating to occupying portions of the Rhine crossings, House noted that the attacks upon the President and the French press suddenly, abruptly stopped. It shows how entirely the matter has been in Clemenceau's hands from the beginning, House discerned, before adding... I told our correspondents today that I would be pleased if they would reciprocate, that the differences between ourselves and France were over, and that, from now, good relations and good feeling should prevail. These good relations and good feeling, unfortunately, were not destined to be qualities used to describe the American relationship with the Italians. House continued to be a useful source of information where changes in American mind were concerned. On the 18th of April, Good Friday, House noted that he and Wilson had come to an agreement on Fiume, the source of all Italian bones of contention, when he wrote, The President and I discussed the question of Fiume, and I urged him to settle it one way or the other. I have about come to the conclusion that since we cannot please the Italians by compromise, we might as well do what seems best in the judgement of our experts, and that is, to give it directly to the Yugoslavs, safeguarding the rights of all those contributory to the port. This solution appealed to the President. I urged him to take it up with Lloyd George and Clemenceau and commit them in order to present a united front. I have not much confidence in his being able to do this because both Lloyd George and Clemenceau still wish to lay the burden on the President, shielding themselves behind the Pact of London. Indeed, on the one hand, Fiume was a convenient plug in the Italian hopes for the Treaty of London's fulfilment, and the reason for that was because Fiume had been, according to the Treaty of London, meant to go to Croatia. By violating that agreement and demanding Fiume now, the Allies could proclaim that Italy had violated the Treaty of London altogether, and thus they were no longer bound by it. A handy get-out-of-jail-free card which, of course, the Italians would never accept. On the other hand, Fiume was incredibly contentious and was likely to lead to friction between Rome and Belgrade. Wilson was also uncomfortable about handing it to Italy, as House's extract shows, so what to do? uphold the Treaty of London and ignore Fiume, or hand Fiume to Italy and avoid the Treaty of London, hoping that Italy would accept. Italy, will recall, wanted the Treaty of London upheld and for Fiume to be thrown in for good measure, while Britain and France wanted essentially to wait for the President to make a decision whereby they would be absolved of having turned on Italy. The whole situation, in case you weren't aware, was akin to a great big mess, and Italy was bound to be burned, no matter what happened. Wilson was also subject to some quite considerable pressures. One of these pressure campaigns came from Isaiah Bowman, who has appeared in our narrative before as America's chief territorial specialist. Bowman was supported in his turn by five other American experts, who had originally persuaded Wilson in early April that, owing to such territorial and demographic concerns, handing Fiume to Italy would be akin to a great crime. Out of concern that their leader might have been failing, these experts then communicated the following documents to the President in the evening of the 17th of April. The memo is worth recalling in full, because it serves to illustrate the extremity of the American position. This is what Orlando was up against if he wanted Fiume to be his, and it is plain from such an extract that he never really stood a chance of persuading anyone. Bowman wrote, En route to France on the George Washington in December, the President gave the territorial specialists an inspiring moral direction. Tell me what's right and I'll fight for it. Give me a guaranteed position. We regard this as a noble charter for the new international order. We have been proud to work for that charter. At this critical moment, we should like to take advantage of the gracious invitation of the President to address him directly on matters of the gravest importance, and in accordance therewith, beg to submit the following observations. The Italian representatives demand Fiume and part of Dalmatia in order to emerge from the conference with loot for their people. These districts belong to Yugoslavia, not to Italy. In our opinion, there is no way, no political or economic device of a free port or otherwise which can repair to Yugoslavia the injury done if any outside power prevents Fiume from being made an integral part of the Yugoslav organisation. It would be charged that we had betrayed the rights of small nations It would be charged that the principle, there shall be no bartering of peoples, had been publicly and cynically thrown aside. Italy entered the war with a demand for loot. France and Italy surrendered to her demand. Of all the world statesmen, the President alone repudiated a war for spoils and proclaimed the just principles of an enduring peace. The belligerent nations, including Italy, agreed to make peace on the President's principles. Italy now insists that she must carry home an ample bag of spoils or the government will fall. If Italy gets even nominal sovereignty over Fiume as the price of supporting the League of Nations, she has brought the League down to her level. It becomes a coalition to maintain an unjust settlement. The world will see that a big power has profited by the old methods. Secret treaties, shameless demands, selfish oppression. The League of Nations will be charged with the acceptance of the doctrines of Talleyrand and Metternich. If Yugoslavia loses Fiume... War will follow. When it comes, the League will be fighting on the wrong side. Ought we to hope that it will be strong enough to win? Will the people of the world send armies and navies and expend billions of dollars to maintain a selfish and aggressive settlement? Better a League of Nations based on justice than a League of Nations based on Italian participation, bought at a price. The Italian government may fall, but the Italian people cannot long withstand the opinion of the world. Never in his career did the President have presented to him such an opportunity to strike a death blow to the discredited methods of old world diplomacy. Italian claims are typical of the method of making excessive demands in the hope of saving a portion of the spoils in subsequent compromises. To the President is given the rare privilege of going down in history as the statesman who destroyed, by a clean-cut decision against an infamous arrangement, the last vestige of the old order. This had the effect of pushing Wilson behind a policy of unrelenting hostility towards any notion of the Italians receiving Fiume. It also virtually guaranteed that, now the efforts to solve Italy in private meetings had failed, the Italian questions would have to be discussed among the Council of Four. This had the potential to wreck Italian relations with its allies still further, because it was well known by Orlando at this point that Italy was standing almost alone in its policy line, and that when it came to a pinch, The Anglo-French would leap to side with the United States before they sided with Rome. Our efforts to record precisely what happened when Italy put its case up for debate in the Council of Four over the 19th to 24th of April is hampered by the teething problems which that body experienced regarding adequate note-taking. The sporadic record of the Council of Four minutes throughout late March and early April does not necessarily mean that no Council of Four meeting took place. It instead tended to mean that no record was taken, because the kinks had yet to be worked out. Not until Sir Maurice Hankey took it upon himself to be present and available for this role for every Council of Four meeting, from about the 24th or 25th of April onwards, did this record improve and the minutes become more fleshed out. As a result of this disconnect though, there isn't actually a record of the 19th of April's Council of Four meeting, even though it certainly did take place, because it's recorded in the diary of the Italian secretary. I should in advance apologise for my language constraints. Reportedly, the Italian record of the minutes was much spicier, because where Hankey was reserved and typically British in his record of what happened during the meetings, the Italian and French secretaries recorded every tense moment, every bust-up, every bad use of language, and every moment one figure might have lost his temper. This explains why Hankey makes no record of Orlando bursting into tears on the 20th of April in the Minutes. He was profoundly embarrassed, but we know that it took place because Hankey later recorded in his memoirs that he would have spanked his own son for such a disgraceful display of emotion. While it embarrassed him, Hankey evidently did not think that his official record of the Minutes, which British figures and international figures alike would spend eternity poring over, should contain such awkward eruptions of emotion. These men were supposed to be international statesmen of the first rank, and it certainly brought them all low to be seen in such a vulnerable, even childish light. Hanky would certainly have applied this ideology to other aspects of the minutes too, to the extent that they can sometimes read like a very orderly, almost friendly series of conversations between the big four, when they were anything but. The Italian and French stenographers, on the other hand, had no truck with recording the nitty-gritty details of conference life, Some day, perhaps, I'd like to read what they made of the goings-on in the Council of Four. It was on the 19th of April that this strange situation with Italian claims was laid bare. Italy could not claim to adhere to the Treaty of London while also demanding Fiume, a port outside the bounds of that treaty. Orlando wanted both, but indicated he would consider his position if the American President confirmed he would abide by the Treaty of London, which he had so far refused to do. Italy would instead deal with each of the Articles of the Treaty of London in turn, and would seek all of them in addition to Fiume. This enabled Orlando, bizarrely, to claim that he was doing the Allies a favour by not abiding by the controversial Treaty of London, when in reality, of course, he was. Lloyd George urged Orlando to compromise, and to consider the fact that they'd all sacrificed so much already. Lloyd George was perhaps the only figure, in fact, to have gotten what he wanted, But Clemenceau giving away on the Rhineland state scheme was used as an example. If the Rhineland plot could be given up, a scheme long associated with French national security, then could Italy not give way on Fiume? Well, Orlando said no. As a kind of spoiler, we can reveal that Lloyd George and George Clemenceau were willing to abide by the Treaty of London and that both were anxious to avoid a break with the United States and both were concerned about rumours regarding Italy's intention to leave Paris. Both figures hoped that a solution could be hammered out in Dalmatia, or with some form of compromise, but as Zanino pointed out, Wilson refused to grant Italy any portions of Dalmatia. The British and French, in short, were caught between two uncompromising figures, both of whom stuck to their guns for very different reasons. Unfortunately for all involved, it took several more days of protracted, bitter negotiation for the penny to drop on the fact that neither side could afford to back down. In these circumstances, the Italians would rather leave Paris altogether than consent to a scheme which would so dramatically disadvantage her. Orlando began the meeting of 10am on the 20th of April 1919 with a stern rebuke of the unfavourable rumours surrounding Italian behaviour. Orlando was vocal in his insistence that no matter what occurred, Italy would not break her alliance with the Allies, but the very mention of this possibility suggested that this option was in fact on the table. Fiume was, of course, the major gripe, and Orlando was determined to demonstrate why that city was a centre for Italian interests, not an exercise in imperial expansion, Orlando exclaimed. I must maintain all the declarations which I have made so far as the question of Fiume is concerned. In reducing the matter to its minimum terms, I must observe to President Wilson that from the point of view of his noble intention of maintaining peace in the world, he is too eminent a politician not to realise that an essential condition for arriving at this object is that of avoiding, between peoples, the sentiment of reaction against injustice, which will form, without doubt, the most fatal germ of future wars. But I affirm here that if Fiume is not granted to Italy, there will be among the Italian people a reaction of protest and of hatred so violent that it will give rise to the explosion of violent contrasts within a period that is more or less close? I think then that the fact that Fiume may not be given to Italy will be extremely fatal just as much to the interests of Italy as to the peace of the world. Nevertheless, since the British and French allies have declared yesterday that they do not recognise the right of Italy to break the alliance in the event of her being accorded only what the Treaty of Alliance guarantees her, I am so convinced of my responsibility towards the peace of the world, in the event of a rupture of the Alliance, to consider it necessary to safeguard myself against every possible accusation in this respect. I declare in consequence formally that, in the event of the peace conference guaranteeing to Italy all the rights which the Treaty of London has assured to her, I shall not be obliged to break the Alliance, and I would abstain from every act or deed which could have this signification. Although the minutes passed and the President and Prime Minister weighed in on the debate, there was plainly a difference in position which Wilson openly underlined. With this intractable difference in place, it was impossible for Wilson or Orlando to go any further until it was resolved. Sidney Senino, by Orlando's side in this Council of Four meeting, expressed his own point of view about the current deadlock between Italy and the Allies, and about the consequences it would have for him. My own responsibility towards my conscience made it necessary, the responsibility of those present towards their own consciences makes it necessary, that everything possible should be done to try and see a way out. Perhaps I myself am too agitated and preoccupied to see the whole of the picture. Monsieur Orlando and I consented to meet and examine every point of view and try and find a way out. It is my duty to do all I can to find a settlement. It had been said that it involved death, moral death, to me. I do not care a pin about that. I only thought of my country. It would be said that I had ruined this country, and nothing could trouble a man more than that. Wilson replied generously to this. Politeness was not lacking in the room, even if commonality was, and the President said, I fully realize that Italy had no imperialistic motives, and give her entire credit for that. I also fully appreciate the tragic personal position in which Baron Sanino was placed. I honour him for his steadfastness, which merely verified the steadfastness he had shown throughout the war. If Italy could see a way out consistent with permanent peace, I would like to assist, if it were, only for personal reasons. I hope that Baron Sanino would never think he had ruined his country, he would really have given it a more glorious record, and no one could say that he had ruined it. The Italians were conspicuous by their absence on the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of April, but that did not prevent the Allies from talking about them. Lloyd George opened an eventful day on Monday the 21st of April with an exposition on Italian claims, revolving still around Fiume. Wilson proved immensely resilient to any notions of handing Italy anything around the contentious region. She could not hold Fiume because Yugoslavia would fight her, she could not hold islands within the Adriatic, because she would attempt to dominate the Adriatic at the expense of everyone else. When a compromise position was proposed by Lloyd George, with Clemenceau producing a map to illustrate the idea, where Italy would receive land in Asia Minor that bordered with Greece, Wilson expressed the problem with this plan plainly. The real trouble was that the Greeks and everyone else appeared to dread the Italians as neighbours. The patriarch of Constantinople... Had called on me the other day and expressed strong objections to having the Italians as neighbours. I felt great care would have to be exercised in this matter, for inasmuch as we were endeavouring to secure the peace of the world, we could not enter into any agreement that would not make for peace. Lloyd George produced a light version of the plan, which suggested there should be an Italian sphere of influence, such as the British had in various parts of the world. To this, Wilson replied that. The British Empire, through a long experience, had learned all sorts of lessons and gained all sorts of ideas in administration of this kind, and did not interfere unduly. The Italians, however, had no such experience. The Italians also had no ethnological claims to this territory, such as the Greeks had. In the case of the Greeks, we were only desired to make them comfortable masters in their own home. The Italians had not inherited any traditions of colonial administration. At the end of the discussion on Italy... Lloyd George expressed the hope that Wilson would not make public a statement on the Italian position which he had written up. Lloyd George and Clemenceau insisted that Wilson's statement rather assumed that Italy had closed the door to an agreement and would be regarded as a final act. It would make it difficult for Italy to recede from her position. Wilson, typically, did not interpret his statement as having this impact, but he noted that he wouldn't publish it in any case, at least. Not yet. The 22nd of April contained a flurry of four separate meetings of the Council of Four, with the first in the morning at 10am containing a brief note from Woodrow Wilson that Orlando signalled he was unable to attend. At this stage, Wilson was becoming convinced of the need to publish a statement regarding the Italian position after all, and he would do so that evening. The next meeting at 11am was consumed with discussions over Japanese claims to Kia Chow on the Shandong Peninsula and Italy was not even mentioned. The intensive focus on Japanese claims reminds us of that at this stage, the Allies were forced to confront the difficult situation where Japan and Italy would both evacuate Paris in protest. Virtually because Italy left first, it became essential the following week to placate Japan and guard against a total abandonment of the Allied Council. The Japanese, as we have learned, played upon the sense of Allied urgency with deft and skilful opportunism, to the undoubted bitterness of the Italians, who had tried and failed beforehand to make use of this same leverage, only to discover that it was not their leverage to possess. In absence of the Italian leaders in the afternoon, the big three still went on with the task of discussing their next move. Lloyd George confessed that he had been confronted when leaving the previous meeting earlier in the day, and his recollection of what had transpired between he and Orlando is worth detailing. Lloyd George said Monsieur Orlando had had the intention of writing a letter saying that Italy could not be represented at Versailles when the Germans came unless the Italian claims were conceded. I had said that in that event, Italy's claim for reparation could not be put forward. Monsieur Orlando had said that this was a settled matter. I had pointed out that this was not the case and that a number of questions were outstanding. I asked to whom Monsieur Orlando proposed to entrust Italy's claim against Germany, France, England or the United States. I had told him I thought he was in a very serious situation. I myself and Monsieur Clemenceau stood by our treaty, but I had told him that if the treaty was signed without the United States of America, it meant disaster. I had pointed out to him that President Wilson was unmovable. Moreover, President Wilson wanted to present his case to the public immediately. Monsieur Orlando must realise that once President Wilson had done so, that he could not go back on it, and there would be no chance of conciliation. I had told him that it was only with the greatest of reluctance that President Wilson would consider the idea of handing over the islands to Italy. After that, I had asked Monsieur Orlando what he thought about the settlement of an establishment of a free city in Fiume, instead of handing it over to Croatia. Monsieur Orlando had then harked back to Zara, Sebenecio, and Spalato. Wilson interjected at this point to note that Italy would never get these concessionary cities. However, the big three were not entirely without ideas for solving Italy's woes. They proposed that Lloyd George should go and meet with Orlando immediately after the meeting had adjourned, with the following terms as the basis for agreement. 1. Fiume, together with the surrounding territory, to be a free city. 2. The islands of strategical importance to Italy, to be ceded with her, excluding islands such as Pago, which are almost an extension of the mainland. 3. Zara and Sebenicchio to be free cities without any definite provision for a plebiscite, but with the power that all countries have, under the League of Nations, to appeal to the League for an alteration of their boundaries. These pieces on the board were contentious issues for Italy, and these terms would certainly require an immense amount of give on Orlando's part. It was virtually impossible to conceive of a situation which did not grant Fiume to Italy, for orlando to return without a guarantee of its status would have been a disaster for his regime in rome the final meeting of the 22nd of april concerned chinese representations about the annexations which japan planned to make of their territory having just heard the japanese perspective earlier in the day this must have been an interesting perspective to see what the chinese thought about the situation but within a week these men whom the president humored would be effectively abandoned and sacrificed in the name of preserving allied unity and preventing the whole conference from collapsing. On the morning of the 23rd of April, the discussion of the Italian situation continued. Lloyd George began by presenting the memo which Orlando had given to him, and which we can detail relatively quickly here. In response to the terms which we mentioned at the end of the afternoon meeting the previous day, which granted very little to Italy, made several free cities in places where the Italians wanted to wield influence, and which handed them only meagre concessions. The Italian Premier presented essentially his counterpoise, demanding the opposite of what Orlando's Allied partners had been willing to give, most notably with Italian control over Fiume and a mandate over Zara and Sabineccio. Lloyd George was open in his criticism of the Italian position, but he was also clear that either way, the Allies were in a sticky situation with Italy. This was because Fiume was not part of the Treaty of London, so if the Allies gave Italy this contentious place, then that treaty could be said to have been violated. However, if Fiume was not handed to Italy, then the Treaty of London could still be said to be in play, which was itself problematic. It was generally agreed, noted Sir Morris Hankey in the minutes for that morning on the 23rd of April, that... Anything which caused a difference between Great Britain and France on the one hand and the United States of America on the other would be most deplorable since the future peace of the world depended so much on these three nations standing together. The danger of uniting the whole of the Slavs in a possible Bolshevist regime was also commented on. That evening on the 23rd of April, for the second meeting of the Council of Four that day, Matters revolved around the issue of reparations, and the Big Three went into considerable amounts of detail. Mercifully, we don't need to address reparations now, so we're going to skip ahead and look at what took place on the 24th of April, the day when the Italians definitively left the scene. Harold Nicholson comes back into our narrative at this point. The man had, probably to his own surprise, been granted leave for Easter, and he'd been in England since the 19th of April with his family. Of course, though Wilson remained clued in to developments, and he recorded in his diary on the twenty fourth of April that the Adriatic question has come to a head while I was over in England. Wilson has issued to the press a statement showing up the Italian claims. The Italians say that they will leave Paris. Good written by now, Italian-American relations have been unmistakably tainted. Woodrow Wilson had determined to publish his manifesto on Italian claims after all and it had appeared in the French press in the morning of the 23rd of April. This gave Orlando time to reply himself, and his reply was released publicly on the 24th of April. The appearance of these duelling memos in the French press hardly helped to present a picture of Allied unity, but they did demonstrate more clearly than ever a break with the past, where once the Allies had been accused of too much secrecy, now they seemed willing to air their dirty laundry as a form of policy. It was quite a turnaround, and for Orlando, it also meant that there was no going back. Wilson's message in the memo of the 23rd of April had been, essentially, more of the same. But throughout it, Wilson seemed to give the impression that he believed the Italian people somehow knew what the right course was and that they would do the right thing. America's historic ties with Italy were emphasised and we were reminded that America is Italy's friend, but no practical solution for opportunity for satisfaction were presented to Orlando in this memo. It was essentially a request for Orlando to stand down by the American president. By this point, Orlando had already decided to go home to Italy, if for no other reason than he would have to return to Parliament to reassert his control over the country's leadership. This memo provided him with several problems, though. The president had made it abundantly clear that Italy and America did not see eye to eye, and Italy was cast as the problem child in Wilson's narrative. By the time Wilson read Orlando's restrained and dignified reply on the morning of the 24th of April, the Italian premier was back in Rome, but its details are still worth noting. Orlando's initial statement within the memo is arguably the most important, the rest simply contains his aforementioned arguments regarding the importance of Fiume to Italy, etc. etc. In his initial reaction to Wilson's statement, we're reminded of exactly how significant it was that Wilson had decided to go behind Italy's back, and without warning, express her position before the world. Orlando wrote that. The step of making a direct appeal to the different peoples certainly is an innovation in international intercourse. It is not my intention to complain about it, but I do take official notice of it so as to follow this precedent, insomuch as this new system, without doubt, will aid in granting the different peoples a broader participation in international questions, and inasmuch as I have always personally been of the opinion that such participation was a sign of a newer era. However, if such appeals are to be considered as being addressed to peoples outside of the governments that represent them, I should say almost in opposition to their governments, it is a great source of regret for me to remember that this procedure, which up to now has been used only against enemy governments, is today for the first time being used against a government which has been, and has always tried to be a loyal friend to the great American Republic, used against the Italian government. I could also complain that such a message addressed to the people has been published at the very moment when the Allied and Associated Powers were in the middle of negotiations with the Italian government, that is to say, with the very government whose participation had been solicited and highly valued in numerous and serious questions, which up to now had been dealt with in full and intimate faith. Orlando would unquestionably have preferred not to take part in a break with the Allies, but by the 24th of April, and especially following the publication of Wilson's statement, he must have felt as though he had no choice. At the very least he'd have to return to Rome, and in the process of returning home and leaving the Council of Four, he would be giving up his seat, thereby vacating the Italian position at this very important moment. René Albrecht Carre, when examining the response of Italians to the appearance of the dueling memos, interpreted their impact when he noted that The immediate reaction in Italy was violent in the extreme and quite unanimous, an emotional outburst of unreasoning nationalism and injured pride, which joined in heaping maledictions on the head of the American president, and, what was more unfortunate, it put for a moment in the same camp the most aggressive and irreconcilable annexationists with those saner elements who advocated a just and reasonable peace of compromise with the Yugoslavs nor can the outburst be explained away as having been engineered by the government, though the latter was at least tacitly sympathetic towards it. The dominant note was not so much perhaps anger or disappointment at the prospect of being thwarted in Fiume. The Fiume agitation as such was to a large extent a comparatively recent and artificial development. It was more resentment against unfair discrimination where Italy was concerned, heightened by touchiness over anything that might seem to raise a question as to Italy's position among the powers. Wilson had threatened, but he had not used such methods when Great Britain and France, more powerful nations, were concerned. So it wasn't just that Wilson hadn't kept faith with Italy or considered her interests. The anger and bitterness which fostered such a deadly political marriage in Italy was also aided by the impression that there was one rule for Italy and one rule for everyone else. As an editorial in Rome expressed at the time, Why does the President want to impose what he considers absolute justice on the Italian people alone? Why does he not first issue a message to the English people to deny it to the German colonies and ask that they all be entrusted to the League? Why does he not send a message to the French people, denying them the right to violate the principle of nationality in the Tsar Basin? Why does he not send a message to the Yugoslav people to tell it that the claims to Trieste, Gorizia and Pola are absurd and unhealthy? Why does he not send a message to the American people to explain that the Monroe Doctrine cannot be reconciled with a League of Nations that claims to ensure equality of rights to all civilised nations? The statute of the League of Nations being rudimentary as it is, it is natural that President Wilson should not ask England to give up Gibraltar, Malta and Suez, but instead should recognise the English Protectorate in Egypt. But why not recognise then the right of Italy to protect herself also in the Adriatic by occupying those Dalmatian islands which would make her coasts secure? Italy has no right in Dalmatia because it is Slav country, but why should not the Slavs renounce Fiume which is two-thirds Italian? The Slavs need the port of Fiume for their commerce, but does not the Covenant of the League make the states assume the obligation to guarantee and maintain the freedom of passage and a just treatment of the commerce of all state members of the League? Should not this article be sufficient to ensure the Slavs that their commerce will not be interfered with at Fiume? Or could it be that the Slavs have a right to distrust the League when it comes to guaranteeing freedom of transit in Fiume under Italy, but that Italy must trust the League for the treatment of the Italian population of the city? It is against this discrimination in treatment that Italy has revolted. Feeling spurned, disadvantaged, ignored, picked on and unfairly maligned, Orlando would likely have withdrawn to Rome, even if Wilson hadn't published his manifesto at that moment. However, the publication of it made the Italian Premier's departure inevitable. What was more, it also momentarily strengthened Orlando's political position. Now that the American President had essentially stabbed Orlando in the back, few Italian statesmen could be found that were willing to mirror this behaviour and challenge Orlando's premiership. In response then, Orlando attempted to double down on the rhetoric of Italy as the victim of Wilson's flawed ideology, as the one allied power who was not permitted to get what she was entitled to, as the sole case where these new principles were rigidly applied. The principle that mattered, as Orlando had come to appreciate, was that which considered first the cynical old world values of power and interest. Italy, as the weaker of the big four, could not muscle its way past Wilson's vision, as the British or French in their own way had managed to do. At the same time, though, while Orlando had proved remarkably calm at the prospect of abandoning the conference, he must have known in his heart of hearts they he would have to return at some point. Wilson was unlikely to compromise now that he had had his bluff publicly called. More was on the line now than his vague principles. In addition, if Italy wanted either her reparations or a seat at the Great Power Table after the signing of the final treaty, then Orlando knew she would have to stick with the Allies into the future. Orlando's political senses told him that he was at a disadvantage, in spite of what he proclaimed before Italian crowds for the next fortnight. And indeed he was correct in this. In the aftermath of the Italian exit, lawmakers and typists gingerly worked to remove all mention of Italy from the final peace deal with Germany, and they had to work quickly in this task, because the Germans were due to arrive soon. With one ally already having left, The Japanese, certainly Techi, and the Germans on their way. The last thing the Big Three could afford were any appearances of division or discord as they attempted to create the treaty with Germany and finalise the covenant of the League of Nations. By the last week of April 1919, against all odds, it was possible on the one hand to claim that the road to peace had been paved, yet on the other hand, it was by no means certain that travelling down said road would be easy, safe...